Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to James chapter number one. James chapter number one. Over the last uh, few weeks, we have slowly but yet methodically begun to work our way through uh, the first chapter of James as we're looking forward to expositionally working our way through this entire book. And uh, James has given us some very focused and urgent and direct teaching right out of the gates on this topic of trials. Um, The church believers, the followers of Christ have been dispersed uh, to many different lands and places. And this letter is to reach them and to give them instruction and how to uh, continue to grow in their knowledge of the Lord and their relationship with the church. And James is seeking right out of the bat to encourage them through this period of time, this period of history that would bring great suffering and trials and tribulations their way. And James is challenging their thinking about trials. And he's teeing up this idea that that although the trial is difficult, although the burden seems heavy, there is, if we are careful to look for it, an unlikely opportunity in the midst of these trials to grow in our relationship with the Lord and to experience grace-enabled joy even in the midst of physical hurt and pain, uh, material loss, uh, religious persecution, James is seeking to challenge your thinking, to think rightly, to develop a wise and biblical perspective on trials. Trials aren't something to avoid or to uh, dance around or to... um, Uh, dismiss, but rather we should embrace the trials that God allows to bring into our life because through them, God is doing something. Trials, let me be clear, are not meaningless. But rather, there is meaningful opportunities for us in the midst of trials, and that's exactly what James is attempting to instruct uh, his readers here in this this first chapter. And so uh, the big idea of, of our text over the last couple of weeks, um, I'll, I've continued to recycle it a bit as we continue to work through this, this text. But the big idea, if you'll remember with, remember with me, was this. Trials should be understood as a normative and expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness within his followers. I know that's a mouthful. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a moment to jot that down one more time. I'll I'll read it once more. Trials should be understood as a normative and even expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness, that progressive sanctifying work of us becoming more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and less like ourselves, and less like our natural man, less like the world, and more like Jesus. He does that through what? Through trials. So there is an unlikely opportunity through trials. So our big idea led us to the first point that we unpacked Uh, about the purpose of trials. Again, that these are not meaningless, vain experiences that we are just to endure or get through, but rather God is doing something in the struggle. He's doing something in the pain, in the loss. He's changing us, conforming us to be more like Jesus Christ. And so the first purpose that we looked at of trials just last week was this. God sovereignly uses trials to redefine the object of our joy in this life. That joy is not to be found in the temporal fleeting things of this world. Joy was not to be found in what we could accomplish or what we could do on our own strength. Or rather true joy was to be found only in an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And through the process of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him and sharing in his sufferings as Jesus Christ modeled for us that there was to be great joy, supernatural joy that could not be comprehended or understood even in this world, but that joy can only be experienced through what? Through the trials of life. And so we talked about how so many things are pulling and vying for our joy and our happiness and our attention in this world. 
but rather James recalibrating and redefining the object of joy for the Christian, and that is, it should be in nothing else other than Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the hope that we have in following him, no matter what may come this side of glory. And so we move on to verses, and that was really through verses two through four, and then as we continue to work our way through our text of verses two through 11, we now find ourselves in the second purpose, we're going to identify two more purposes this evening as we work through verses 5 through 11. Uh, by God's grace, that's what we'll cover this evening. And then uh, next week, we're going to finish out verses 12 uh, through 18. So the second purpose that I want to uh, call out and that James points our attention to this evening is this. That God sovereignly uses trials to cultivate a wise perspective to life's hardships. God sovereignly uses trials to cultivate, to grow, and to foster a wise perspective to life's hardships. John uh, oh, a, a pastor and author. He's written a, a small little book uh, through the Nine Marks series, a book on, on prayer. He starts out a chapter by giving uh, this analogy of Mike Tyson, and uh, I enjoy it. I resonate because I, I remember some of this in history, but there's kind of this famous interview of, of Mike Tyson back when he was in his prime, and I can't remember who he was about to face off against, but um, the, the reporter who was interviewing him was calling out the unique abilities and uh, the physical stature and the time and study of Mike Tyson's strengths and weaknesses and was, and was asking uh, Mike Tyson about his perspective, particularly to the, the style and advantages that this uh, individual, this foe, this uh, opponent, this other boxer would have in this upcoming match. And Mike Tyson, if, if you'll remember with me, he responds, and this was an, an instant hit and it became an instant famous quote, but uh, he says this in the midst of, of, um, of that interview. He says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I don't know if you remember that about Mike Tyson, but what's he saying? I, whoever he was about to box against and fight against, they could scheme and they could prepare and, and they could be ready and have every single round planned out just to the T, but yet that plan kind of goes out the window as soon as they get punched in the mouth. And then you just end up doing what? Fighting and boxing and defense and offense and, and going through just the reflexes of a boxing match. So everyone has a as a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So similarly, it can be somewhat easy for us to sit back and, and talk about the theory of trials, if you will. We can talk about how much we know about God and his grace and his mercy, how it will and would sustain us through deep times of, of loss. But I wonder if that theory becomes a reality when those trials knock on the door of life. When we preferably, preferably get punched in the mouth with a trial, when an unexpected circumstance uh, is introduced into our life, when we lose that job, when we have that marital struggle, when we uh, may be persecuted for our faith, when we get that just horrible diagnosis of a terminal illness, when that illness progresses to the point of, hey, we may be on our deathbed. I wonder, do we believe that we can truly count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials? Do we truly believe that if we endure and we are steadfast in the midst of trials, when we let that steadfastness have full effect, that we can't be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? Do we believe that? Or is that just theory that we know in our mind from an academic perspective? But friends, what James is drawing our attention to is that, hey, we don't want to just know these things about the Lord because it's not a matter of if, but when, you meet trials of various kinds, we can have joy. Christ's likeness can and will be developed in and through our life. And so there is not just theory 
and theoretical questions and, and, and topics for us to address when it comes to trials and tribulations. But there's reality for us to reconcile with when we consider who God is, his, his character, and the trials that we experience this side of eternity. How do we respond? Well, James is attempting, again, to remind us that God sovereignly uses these trials and these difficulties, these times of pain and loss, to develop and cultivate a wise and biblical perspective to life's hardships. They're not meaningless. There's purpose and meaning as God is working in the midst of those ashes. He's doing something great. For his glory and friends, it doesn't feel like it, but even for our good, it is best for us to go through these trials. It is best for us to go through these seasons of tribulation because it's only through those that steadfastness can be developed and Christ likeness can begin to come out so we can understand the sufferings of Christ and we can say, hey, you know what? Whatever was gained to me, I count it loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, the Lord. So I wonder, have you known some things about trials? Have you known some things in your head about your relationship with God in the midst of tribulation? But maybe now circumstances have brought trials your way. The Lord has providentially in his wisdom and his infinite plan, he has allowed whatever you're experiencing today and tomorrow and the next day, he has allowed it to take place in your life because there is a purpose there that he is trying to draw your attention to that you would have a wise and biblical perspective about these trials. So look with me in verse number five. James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, And that's a beautiful opening statement to this verse because guess what? We all lack wisdom, especially in the midst of trials and difficulty and loss and and suffering. I don't know about you, but these verses of two, three, and four that we went through last week, those are not necessarily easy verses for us to just wrap our minds around and say, hey, great, that sounds good. Um, That's easy stuff for us to understand, but rather... That's a heavy message. It's a heavy message for James to say, count it all joy. Regard, understand, believe in a certain way about these trials. That's not easy for us to do. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in that work. And so James gives that instruction. He gives us two imperatives to count it all joy. And then he says, what? And let steadfastness. That was the second imperative. And then he moves on to verse number five, almost as if he's empathizing with the difficulty of the message. And he says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom about what? Developing a wise and biblical perspective on trials, being able to respond and react to the trials that God has allowed to come in your life in a God-glorifying way. I lack wisdom, friends, in how to do that well for the glory of God. I need wisdom and help in that work. And so James, as if he's understanding and empathizing with our need, he gives us this instruction to cultivate a wise perspective on life. So how do we cultivate a wise perspective on the trials of life? He tells us to come to the Lord in prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I love this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Friends, I wonder, what is the reflex of your life this evening in the midst of trials? How do you respond? How do you 
react when when trials hit introduced into personally your marriage in your workplace in your church do we do we ask god for wisdom do we come to the lord do we take our cares to the lord and and go to the source of wisdom Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. James is attempting to develop a Holy Spirit-enabled reflex in the midst of trial for us what to consider a wise perspective. And that wise perspective is not going to allow us to look inward or draw inward to our own way, our own understanding, our own wisdom, but rather in the midst of trials, a wise and biblical perspective would be to go to the source of truth for help in our time of need. James is going to continue to contend that we should be turning to God when trials strike. It's interesting. As I was doing some research and study on this particular passage and this transition um, away from trials to prayer, that some commentators give James somewhat of a, a hard time about this almost whiplash type of switch of topic. And, you know, I, I'm not sure why they do. I, I think they may be off in, in many ways. Um, I have a hard time with it, one, because uh, this is in the inspired word of God. And I believe that there's intentionality and purpose and inspiration uh, in these books that we are studying um, God and the Holy Spirit work through James to, to pen these words uh, for us, even all these many years later. And so it's the inspired word of God. And secondly, I have a problem because I believe that James's shift in the text is intentional, purposeful, and I believe it's even helpful. So this Seemingly sidebar or disconnected topic on wisdom is purposeful and needed. Why? Because I don't know about you, but again, these, these verses two through four that we just unpacked and, and, and worked through, it's, it's difficult. So in my human nature, I'm with James. Yeah, I need some wisdom right now. I need some help in making sense of, of what I'm hearing and what I'm reading in this letter. And so because of what I'm hearing, and I'm not sure exactly how to respond or what to do. I, I want to walk with the Lord. I want to be faithful. But yet these trials are heavy. James, they're real. Um, and so what should our response and reflex and reaction be? It should be to go to the Lord in the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of that difficulty. Our reflex should be to go to the Lord. So God cultivates this wise perspective to life's hardships in three ways in these following verses. Verse number five, he does that first by simplifying our responsibility. James here simplifies our responsibility. What is our role in the midst of trial and difficulty and hardship? Well, James says it simply this, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Are you struggling today right now with maybe the questions of why in the midst of your trial? Are you wrestling with the goodness of God and, and his, his character? How can I be going through this? A, a, your faithful servant who has given your life, uh, given my life to you to be faithful. How can you allow this to happen? Have you heard these questions? Have you wrestled with these questions yourself? Are you uncertain about what tomorrow may, may hold? what it may bring for you. You lack wisdom. James says, what is our role and our responsibility? What are we to do? We're simply to ask God. This phrase here, uh, it's, it's, it's found in a third person imperative. So yes, it's, it's yet another imperative in the book of James. In the Greek, it could actually be translated in this way. The person who lacks wisdom must ask God. Uh, it's, it's almost this 
this default reflex. It's almost this assumptive idea or concept that if you lack wisdom, you're a true follower of God, you need understanding, you need encouragement. There should be no other reaction that a follower of Christ would have other than to what? Simply take that need, that petition to the Lord in prayer. And so then I love these descriptions of God that follow this imperative. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, verse 5 says, who gives generously to all without reproach. So James draws his, his readers into the nature and, and the goodness and the character of God on the heels of understanding some great teaching and the difficulty of trials. We now understand our, our responsibility and it's simple, simplified. We're simply to, to take that request and this trial and this difficulty to the Lord in prayer. And he follows it up immediately with reminding his readers of who we are bringing our request to. It is first a God that is incredibly generous. James describes God as first generous. This can also mean unwaveringly or without hesitation. God is generous. You see, God simplifies our responsibility. He hasn't called us to solve our trial. He hasn't called us to fix our trial or deploy a plan or engineer our way out of this difficulty of life. But rather our responsibility, our role, the part that we play in this is simply in the midst of the trial when we lack wisdom, because we do, his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways, says the Lord. Isaiah 55 reminds us we are often going to struggle with reconciling purpose in the midst of trial. And so when we lack wisdom, we're invited to ask God for wisdom. So not only does James draw his readers' attention to the reality that God is generous, but he also does it how? He responds to this petition of, of wisdom. How? Without reproach, James says. So this, this phrase speaks wonders to the disposition and the demeanor of the Lord towards us in our time of need. When we, and who are we in the Lord? We are God's beloved and chosen children. That is our identity as a Christ follower, as a believer. We're not just some random person to the Lord and the God of this universe, but rather we are beloved and chosen children. He is kindly disposed towards us, just like a father would be towards his own children. This is the God that we serve. So when we're in the midst of trials and difficulty and suffering and hurt and pain, God invites us as a father would invite his children to come and to receive an embrace and, and wisdom and counsel and help and comfort. He does it without reproach. We're invited to come to him in prayer with the desire for wisdom and understanding of our trial. What does God do? God leans down. He listens. What does he do? He, he responds. He responds to the hurt. He responds to the lack of understanding. He is compassionate towards his children in a way that is without reproach. What does that look like when we use that phrase without reproach? God is not inconvenienced by our petitions. This is what this could mean. God is not resentful in any way that we are coming to him, that we are bothering him with our petitions for wisdom. There's no strings attached. He's not manipulative that I'm being bothered, but hey, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you some wisdom. But hey, 
you know what? I'm, I'm going to need to get something back in return. I'm going to need a lot more obedience and a lot more works and a lot more doing. I'm, no, this is, this is not the God of the Bible. This is grace-enabled help in our time of need. He lavishes this upon us without reproach and generously, unwaveringly offers this wisdom to those that need it. So his giving of wisdom is described by um, theologian Robert Plummer as a transparent and without reserve or hesitation. I love that description. It's, It's a transparent without reserve or hesitation. God is generous. He is without reproach. This God that is kindly disposed to us, he is ready to provide wisdom. He is ready to be responsive to the needs of the one that is seeking clarity and understanding and help. This is simplifying our responsibility in the midst of trials. And it's through this process that God is developing a wise and biblical perspective on trials. So this description of God is no doubt going to stand in stark contrast to this double-minded man we're going to hit on here in just a few moments in verses 6 through 8. But here, in verse number 5, we have a God that is standing ready to pour out his wisdom in an unreserved way so that we can come to him and we can ask And when we ask, look at me at the end of verse number five. There's a great promise and great hope for us. This is beautiful. How does God respond? And it will be given him. And it will be given him a wise perspective on trials. This is what James is attempting to accomplish through this section of the text. He's challenging our thinking and our understanding. If you lack wisdom, if you're having difficulty in reconciling the purpose and the meaning and the timing, if you lack wisdom, James says, go to God, the source of all wisdom, and he will generously and without reproach give it to you. That is beautiful. So friends, I wonder... When was the last time in the midst of a trial we responded in that way? The Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will direct your paths. Is the hand of the Lord too short to save? Is the ear of the Lord? No, he is ready and able and he's willing, standing ready to give wisdom in our time of need. So he simplifies our responsibility. Secondly, he strengthens our faith through this process of trials. Look at me at verses six through seven. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So verse 6 kicks off, but let him ask in faith. How? With no doubting. So this is both a prerequisite and an active work that unfolds in the life of the one who comes to God seeking wisdom in prayer. James goes on to paint uh, just an incredible word picture here of what it looks like to come to God in a self-serving manner. Because at the end of the day, there really are only two options available when approaching God. We either come seeking wisdom in God's will. That wisdom is good and it's able to further and accelerate and accomplish this sanctifying work of of the Holy Spirit as as Christ-likeness is developed in our lives. Or 
The other option is that we come to God on our own terms and for our own purposes. This is the picture that we have here in James chapter 1 of the man that does not come to God in faith. What does it look like for him? Verse number 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts. Okay, so this is the one who is coming to God, not believing, not trusting, not hoping, not understanding that although God is day after day disconnected from the Lord, living in isolation from the will of God, living in their own way, their own purposes, pursuing their own desires in life, and then trial and difficulty hits They feel overwhelmed with the struggle and suffering of life. And it's at that moment that, oh, yeah, God is there. Maybe I'll try that for this moment. There's not a relationship with the Lord. There is no belief. There is no hope. They interact with the God of the Bible as some genie in a bottle, running to him with some fleeting prayer, hoping that maybe that will work with some other help, self-help initiatives that maybe they deployed prior to even coming to the Lord. Not seeking him and his desires and his wisdom and his timing, his purposes and his ways. But rather they're coming to the Lord just out of what they can gain and get and receive from him in their time of desperation. That individual will be like a wave of the sea that is tossed by the wind. If you can put yourself in a boat, put yourself in the most terrifying storm on the sea, the ocean, waves crashing over the top of that boat, lightning striking, torrential downpours, Waves just seem to engulf at that moment, going back and forth as the winds swirl and shift and pound and seemingly relentlessly uh, seek to consume at that moment. This is what like is what that individual will be like in that moment when they come to the Lord without faith. So why? Why does James call out and draw attention to this qualifier of faith. Why does he seem to place such a high premium on this concept of faith in, in chapter number one? This is some this is strong language that unfolds here in verse number seven. For that person, the person that doubts, the person that comes to the Lord in a self-serving manner, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James is is clear, crystal clear in this reality. Faith is described here in a unique way in a foundational way, in a meaningful way. Why? Because faith at the end of the day is the essence of Christianity, is it not? When you think of it, faith is believing. Faith is the answer to Christ's most universal and, and timeless question of who do you say that I am? Christ said to the crowd, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And what was Peter's answer? You are the Christ. Hebrews 11, verse number six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must, the qualifier, must what? Believe. If you're to draw near to God, if you're to have a personal, intimate relationship with God, we must first believe that he exists And that he, that God that exists and that is creator of all things, and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so this wise perspective that God sovereignly uses trials to develop, he simplifies 
our responsibility, strengthens our faith through this process of trials. And thirdly, God stabilizes our ways through allowing trials in our path. In contrast to this double-minded man, verse number eight, this one who approaches the Lord without faith, the one that is like a a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person that must not think he received anything from the Lord, verse 8, he, that person, that man or woman, is is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. How are they double-minded? They want their cake and they want to eat it too. They want to walk with the Lord, yet they want to pursue their own way and their own desires. They want to live out their way on their their way and excuse me, their faith and the, on their own terms. Contrary to the word of God. So a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Ultimately this asking of God is an imperative for us to get before God in prayer. I love that James hits a providential timeout and talks about our response to trials. And that should be that we run to God in prayer. There's something about prayer that helps in placing our lives in a proper place. Is there not? There's something about the activity of a prayer. It's by its very nature. What are we doing through the activity of prayer? We're admitting to God that guess what? I don't have all the wisdom. I don't have the answers. And just by the very act of praying, we're demonstrating a humility, a humility of heart before a kind and, and generous God who is willing and able to bring about this great work of joy and growth in Christ's likeness and wisdom. This God who is able to be steadfast and to produce steadfastness for us under the incredible weight and burden of trials. None of us are able to do that in our own strength. We need the Lord. And how do we petition and invite? And how do we uh, link up with the Lord's help uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit? We recalibrate our heart and our mind, life, back to the foot of the cross, casting our burdens and our needs and our cares We go boldly before the throne of grace, not because we have anything of ourselves, but because we know that we have nothing and we need the Lord. And through Christ, we have an advocate. We have a Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the counselor, the comforter, who is going before the throne of grace, even when we don't know how or what to say. That Holy Spirit is before the throne of God right now, making groanings that cannot be uttered. On our behalf. Incredible hope that is for us in our time of need. Friends, we need the Lord. We need that Holy Spirit. We need His Word. We need His church. We need all these means of grace that He has given us in the midst of trials. And so, friends, don't isolate. Don't draw away. Don't look inward to your own wisdom or your own understanding, but embrace these means of grace that he has given us in our time of need, in our time of loss, our time of difficulty, in our time of sorrow. God, who is generous and without reproach, is standing ready to minister. So our final purpose that we're going to look at This evening, we see in verses 9 through 11, God sovereignly uses trials to dispel the myth of placing hope in material wealth. 
God sovereignly uses trials to dispel the myth of placing hope in material wealth. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So we have here in verse number nine, the lowly brother described this passage or this text uh, verses nine through 11 is speaking to the poor and the rich. And so this poor or lowly or what could be described as the humble are to do what? They are to boast in his exaltation. So they're to to rejoice literally in their state of physical poverty. For through these physical trials that the poor and the humble and the lowly will experience through these seasons of lacking in physical or material means, there is the ever-present hope for that person that what they experience as far as loss in this world and this time of of lacking in material possession, there is an ever-present hope that there are riches to be found in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that they, yes, can count it all joy when they meet trials of various kinds. Their state of lacking is but temporal as they remember that their true state as a believer, that they are heirs, heirs with Christ. And as such, they are due an inheritance of eternal life. So if we find ourselves in a season, friends of material loss or struggle or difficulty, what should our response be? And friends, I'm going to tell you in our American brand of Christianity and Western Christianity and uh, the church living in the midst of the American dream, this response is going to be so countercultural, so supernatural, so Holy Spirit empowered that it will seem so foreign and strange and alien to this world that we live in. But we are to find joy. We are to rejoice in our seasons of lacking in material possessions and loss. How can we do that? We do that through faith. We do that through trust in the Lord. We have joy in that time as we have the opportunity to uniquely rely on the Lord for all that we need. So just as the Lord preached on the Sermon of the Mount, take no thought about the cares of tomorrow. He is aware of what you have need of. Don't think about what you eat, where you're going to live, the clothes that you have on your back. Why? Because just as he clothes the flower of the field, takes care of the bird of the air, our Heavenly Father will take care of us, yes, even in seasons of lacking in material possessions. So it's interesting, though, that James turns his reader's attention to the trial of riches. Now, this seems like somewhat of an oxymoron, doesn't it, when we consider the trial of riches? Um, It seems like a mistake. I don't know about you, but uh, often when I read this, I'm like, hey, I, I, I get James that it's your perspective that, that, that riches and having uh, material wealth could be a trial. I'll go ahead and sign up for that trial, right? Have you ever been there before, right? That's one trial that we might not avoid, but rather go ahead and bring that trial on. I'm, I, I'm sure I can endure that and figure a way out through that. But before we dismiss the the trial of of wealth as something that would be easy for us to bear. We need to understand what God has to say in this text about the rich. 
So look at me at verse number 10, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Scripture has a lot to say about the dangers of material excess. James reminds the wealthy, and these are described as uh, as brothers. Uh, these would be those in the church that have given their life to follow Christ, uh, that would still be of material means. Uh, he gives them a warning as he's attempting to do what? Our third purpose, that God sovereignly uses trials to dispel the myth of placing their hope in material wealth. So if you do have means, if you currently happen to be in a season of of excess, do not place your hope in your material wealth in the midst of trial. Because it's temporal. It's fleeting. Just as the the, the sun arises and scorches the earth and the flowers fade, so will the rich man in his pursuits. So there, uh, again, is a warning. James reminds the wealthy that their current state of potential standing and success and prominence, it's, it's what? It's temporal and it's fleeting. There's this cautionary tone to this final few verses, verses, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we must all exercise what? Holy Spirit-enabled discernment to steward well the resources that God has given us. Jesus himself warns. In the gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Don't place your hope in material wealth, but rather place your hope in God. So these trials of life, friends, in closing, it's a reminder that they are not meaningless. James is attempting to help his readers develop a wise perspective on trials. To view them as an immense opportunity to grow in our relationship with the Lord. They are meaningful. Trials, difficulties, suffering, loss, they're meaningful. God uses them for his glory, for our good in developing Christ-likeness and steadfastness and immense joy in the midst of trial. We read 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 as our assurance of grace this evening. I'm going to read it just one more time as you meditate on the reality of suffering and loss. Second Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our flesh, our life is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the work of progressive sanctification being set apart from the world being set apart to God, becoming more like Jesus Christ through the trials and difficulties and circumstances of life. Verse 17, Paul says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. This is faith. This is hope that there is something to be achieved and accomplished beyond this momentary suffering. That there is eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he's preparing for us a place for that day. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is our hope. Friends, God uses trials for three purposes. He uses trials to redefine the object of our joy in this life. He uses trials to sovereignly cultivate a wise perspective to life's hardships. And thirdly, he sovereignly uses trials to dispel the myth of placing hope in material wealth. Friends, our big idea of our text, verses 2 through 11, over the last three weeks has been this, that trials should be understood as a normative and expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and extends his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness. Friends, I wonder, over the last three weeks, as we've gone through verses 2 through 11, have you seen the opportunity, the unlikely opportunity of trials? Has God changed your perspective, how you regard or think about trials, maybe in a more biblical and God-honoring way? Has God, maybe through these last three weeks, allowed trials, difficult times of suffering and loss to providentially come into your life to accomplish and accelerate his work of what? Developing you to be more like Jesus Christ so that we could share in his suffering, so that we can know how to walk and talk and respond and react and love and to see the world through the eyes of Christ, to be the hands and feet of Christ in the midst of great suffering in this world. I pray that we would be changed as a result of seeing and receiving the word of God this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that you would continue to do a work that I can't do, that your Holy Spirit would change us. Father God, I pray that if somebody is in the trenches of a great trial and loss and suffering, I know that many in our church are, I pray that they would believe that you are a generous God, that you are a God that offers wisdom and hope and love and grace and mercy and comfort without reproach. Father, I pray that if there's somebody this evening that is doubting, they would believe afresh and anew that you will give it to them. You will give them what wisdom and understanding and purpose in the midst of great seasons of trial. Father God, I thank you for this time. I pray that you alone would be glorified and magnified, that you would use your word to do an incredible work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.